This is another bottle down on Co-op Radio, KOOP Hornsby, Austin, 91.7 FM, and KOOP.org. I'm your host, Mark Rayshap, here to appreciate wines from all over the world and to talk with Austin's leading wine professionals, from winemaker to sommelier and everyone in between. Now it's time to put another bottle down. Right. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have a great show for you today. We're going to be talking with Kevin Fink, who's owner and chef of Emmer and Rye, and his uh, sommelier, Rand Egbert. They are live here in the co-op studios. We're going to dig into uh, all the amazing things that they have going on at Emmer and Rye, as well as the food events that are happening at South by Southwest, and talking about all the amazing chefs that are coming into town and uh, how folks are kind of just getting along in this food community that we see going around the, the U.S. and booming here in Austin. So stay tuned for Kevin Fink and Rand Egbert. guys thank you so much for coming into the co-op studios kevin fink welcome uh, i love I, I love what you're doing here uh in austin with emmer and rye thank you i'm excited to be here uh it's the middle of a crazy week for everybody i know i know uh your time is so valuable in this time of year so so thank you for coming in and rand welcome to the studio we've been trying to get you in to talk about the wine program at emmer and rye so so thank you so much for being here thank you for having me i'm excited to be here all right, get right up on that mic. All right. All right. Thank you. Perfect, perfect. So, uh, you know, I'd like to start off by talking about, you had an event uh, that was part of South Bites uh, that is, what happened last night, uh, and this is part of a growing trend that we're seeing with South by Southwest to more highlight chefs from around the country and food events around, around Austin. Can you tell us a little bit about the event? So the South Bites dinners have changed every single year. And uh, there was one this year that was done at Chicon with Jose Andres and Aaron Franklin. Awesome. Super fun. That right, was on that's... a Saturday. Yeah, right. Um, and then on Monday, we did one with Naomi Pomeroy from Beast and then Michael Cherneau from Seymour's. And then the meatball shop is how most people really know. And that was at your spot, right? And that was at Emmer and Rye. Uh, and we were really excited. KitchenAid was our sponsor. They gave away a $15,000 kitchen to somebody. Wow. The woman who won was so cute too. It was like the perfect <laughs> She was in the bathroom when the announcement went off. Everyone was like waiting. She came out, spotlight on her, and the exact kind of reaction you want. Uh, it's awesome. So so the event at your spot was last night and uh, tell us a little bit about the other chefs that were there because they're 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 really uh, prominent in their own right. So uh, Naomi Pomeroy is a James Beard Award winner. She just came out with a cookbook, uh, Taste and Technique, which is awesome. Uh, really great for like kind of the home cook as well. Right. Uh, and her restaurant is a 24-seat restaurant with two seatings. Um, and they've been open their, on their 10th year now. And I think her food, which is very classic in French, but also very locavore, um, is, is just very satiating. And the way that she looks at it is very satiating. It was great to collaborate with her and show her some of the things that we're so proud of as Texans in our environment and then get her take on this very classic kind of like modernized French technique that is um, really such delectable food. And then, and then Michael's food um, 
is right now very seafood focused because of Seymour's. And so everything that they did had some influence of that. And as opposed to, you know, for us just working with things from the Gulf, uh, they ended up working from things from kind of uh, up more in the Northeast, which is what they're so proud of there. Right, and so they're right. doing a seafood restaurant meant to be kind of an everyday for them uh, that is based upon only sourcing locally and a lot of the bycatch. So therefore, as opposed to depleting the ocean as much as um, we are nowadays with the influx of salmon and halibut and ahi sales, um, it's now about understanding how delicious the diversity of kind of fish uh, coming out of the ocean can be um, and, and not pigeonholing people into just these name brand things. Right. So it seems like you're, you're doing similar but distinct work on all the coasts there. And then this event just puts you all in, in one kitchen. Is how, how was the behind the scenes thing uh, going on? I mean, did you work well together? Was there... Sure, it's Give always an a question. Yeah. And, and it's funny, it was the first question that everybody kind of asked. But even just seeing the dynamic of the group it was very obvious that early on everybody got along and, and was excited to cook with each other and, right, and right. had great respect for um, what the other person did, which I think is an important part of every single collaboration is not tr kind of steamrolling anything. Right. Um, and, uh, and it was great and we were really excited uh, and the people that were at the event had a great time um, and we're excited to do something next year. Yeah, so you know, can we talk about the growing uh, role of food at South by Southwest? Because you know they've done the trailer park, which is really kind of cool, featuring trailers from around the country and different cuisine. Uh, but these small chef-oriented events are relatively new, right? So the, the interesting thing to me about working with South by Southwest, which is really our first year of actually working with them, is. Right how they're constantly evolving this incredibly uh, well-attended and well-respected festival. And they're, yet, they're still very much in this mode that is about innovation, that is this mode about adapting what's going on. And the reality is food and wine and our perspective on it is in the forefront of so many agendas right now for a lot of reasons. We recognize that it's linked to um, so many dietary just restrictions, but beyond that, medical problems. And more than anything, we love to eat, right? Yeah. you know, um, and so uh, that's something that we're growing and putting more value on. Um, and, and in that, there's more excitement around that. And therefore, it's something that I think uh, is open as a, a forum and also as an installation at South by. Yeah, and, and so, um, and, and this bringing chefs from around and, and focusing on what's really going on, was there, was there this, um, this conscious effort to say, hey, we want to highlight people who are doing local? Is, was that local piece kind of a, a big thing? I mean, uh, I, I think that as we evolve as a food culture, we'll continuously be looking and doing what you're doing at Emmer and Rye on a continual basis, right? Do you think that? I mean, for us, uh, we're fairly selective on whom we open our brand up to. And I think part of that is um, making sure that we want to be true to ourselves. I think there are a lot of really amazing, talented celebrity chefs that have built their brands in very different ways in the way that we believe and build Emron Rye. And by associating with some of them, um, it maybe confuses what is really important to us. So of course, you know, finding like-minded people that allow us to, to, 
build from each other and be inspired right, from each other right. is really important. Right, that exchange of ideas and, and inspiration, I think, yeah. at the heart of the festival, right? Rand, can I bring you in and talk about Absolutely. the event uh, as far as the wine side of things? Was there... Um, you know, did you put together the, the the wine side of things? Was it just off of your wine list? How did the event go wine-wise? Well, the wines were kind of a, a mix of things that we already have on the list and things that we brought in specifically for the weekend. Um, but whether it's an event at South By or uh, a random Wednesday in the restaurant, um, we're going to be sourcing similar wines um, that are going to be food-friendly, um, approachable for a large audience, um, and when I say food friendly, things that are wines that are high in acid, right, um, right. maybe a little bit lower in tannin or body, um, right. because we're small plates, family style, you're going to be having uh, potentially one bottle of wine that's going to carry you throughout Through your whole the meal, dinner. Right. So if you're starting with something lighter like fish or a salad and then working into richer pastas and maybe or some heavier meats, we want to be able to find that great bottle that's going to carry throughout your whole dinner. Right. Um, and that same approach was taken to a lot of the events um, that during South By because we're still serving the same way. It's still small plates and it's right. still family style. Do you did you find that during South By folks have been a little bit more open to your guidance or is it, hey, I know what I like? Because uh, a lot of folks who are visiting, uh, does that change at all during the festival? Or, or, or are folks mostly very open to your suggestions when they come into your spot? Uh, you know, I think it's, it's a mix. Definitely there's a lot of people um, who come in from all over the, um, all over the country and world um, who, you know, some have more refined palates than others or are a little bit more experienced um, in the world of wine. Um, which is a lot of fun with us because, you know, right. it's exciting for us to be able to kind of geek out with people who are really into that. But at the same time, um, you know, the great thing about hospitality and being in restaurants is finding the people who don't necessarily have that knowledge and right. trying to open them to new opportunities, which, you know, thankfully, you know, the team that I work with, they're, um, they're very excited about not only the food, but the wine that we have. And, um, you know, if somebody comes in and says, I'd like a Chardonnay, they'll be like, great, well, we have this beautiful one, but how about trying something like this tonight? It might go better with the, the, the food that you've ordered, right? Yeah, and, you know, I think those are, and working in a restaurant and, and hospitality, those are the types of moments you want to create that create a lasting impression for guests to return and, and think about that restaurant. Right, if folks day. have a, an, an experience and a, an enlightening time with something new that they haven't experienced, that, that could make all the difference, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I feel like our my approach was... Um, the same during a South by uh, a w event as it would be any other day in the restaurant. Cool. Well, good luck on the uh, you know the rest of this week. I know that you're you're going to be slammed every night. I'm sure. Can we talk about the how Emma and Rye kind of came about and some of the philosophies that that are going on and some of the sourcing? I mean, you name um, uh, the restaurant Emma after after a, a grain, right? Tell us about that. So. Um the goal of Emma and I was always, I think my wife and I were living in Tucson, Arizona. And uh, at the time I was running four restaurants as kind of a, a director of operations and looking at the goal of, I was a partner in it as well, of expanding to five, six, seven, and eight and, and starting to move to a lot of areas. And I think what I recognized in that is, um, yeah, that was a great way to make money, but it, right. but it wasn't something that um, I felt was going to achieve and move our, our movement of food forward. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I was excited to have a voice in doing that. 
And so in opening Emmer and Rye, we tackled a lot of issues um, that are very real to everybody, which is everyone wants to support small farms, right. but having a consistent menu makes it very difficult to work with small farms. Right. Um, it's like buying like single vineyard wine. Uh, if you're going to hold and allocate a single vineyard wine and that's going to be on the list and it's going to be a BTG, um, a, the value of it's already hard to, to get to and B, there's only so much of it that's made. Right. Right. So you have to be okay with this changing, you know, flow of things. Right. And, and as a restaurant, we deal with that on a day to day basis. So we literally to create a menu every single day. We will have a meeting basically at the end of the shift about what we think is going to come in, what's okay. available. We'll meet again at 10 to talk about what actually came in and how it looked <laughs> and what, you know, if it's smaller than we thought, if it's more bitter than we thought, if it's bigger than we thought. And then we'll have another, we'll sit down and talk about our team uh, at 1.15 and then finalize the menu at 4 just every single day for what's going to be on the menu at 5.30. So you don't know what's going to be on the menu when you open really until 4 p.m., until an hour and a half before it starts? A lot of times, absolutely, wow. because um, we're hoping that things are going to come in. But when you're dealing with such small farms, a lot of times things are really tight. And right, if it's like, right. if there's a heavy downpour, right. which we've all seen happens, right, right. maybe a farmer can't get out of that trench to, you know, to get through deliver. this rural road to make right. a delivery. It's not even, they necessarily didn't have the product. They might've already harvested the product right. or maybe it rained so hard that the two days before, that it was too wet to actually harvest because it would have kind of uh, been bled out or, or really watered down. And all those are very real things that we want to allow them the freedom to selectively say, this isn't going to be the right quality. I want to move on. I have this thing that I, you can use, or can you get something from somebody else? And in creating that safety net for them, you end up with more fresh food. Yeah, you end up with right. more inspired food and they end up with a more security of a background to know that I can try new things. How do they really understand? I mean, it takes a little bit of col uh, collaboration on their end to understand what you're really doing and to not try and, um, you know, pawn off some things and, uh, or I don't want to say pawn. No, you're off right. Things, you're but, absolutely you know. right. And, and there were people early on and they'll go, they'll remain unnamed sure, who are yeah. great local farms who tried to take advantage of that, who we no longer buy from. Right, right. And, um, you know, those are hard conversations. Um, what was, I mean, was the culture you had, so you had, you had to first have those conversations. It's not like there was kind of a culture of that, that farms knew, understood what, what restaurants were trying to do. And then therefore there was that kind of culture. You, 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 when you came and started this, it was like, wow, what's going on here? as from the distribution, from the supply side. There's some really great restaurants also sourcing sure, locally sure. here that I think do a great, great job of it. Our yeah, perspective yeah. on it is for sure different. And part of that I think is that I grew up with, you know, a farmer who started a quarter acre farm that's now 25 acres. And we had essentially like a CSA model with them. And what right. we would do is we would invest in seeds with them. And we'd buy 200% of the seeds that we thought we needed for the crops that we were gonna get. And so that way we got this yield Right. And whatever more yield we got of that, they would sell and they would get money for that. That was their side of, I own the land, I'm going to harvest these things, I'm going to farm these things. Right. And they're out zero of the investment up front of it. Right, right. So, well, if it's a bad crop, we got 100% because we double planted. Right. If it was a great crop, well, then they had a bunch of money to be able to make on that. So 
in many ways, we had this very great security that we had set into it. And the hardest thing for farms is cash flow. Right. And so they were invested ahead. So like I brought this up to some people here when we were talking about it. And, and they were like, I, well, I don't even know how to work on their model like that. <laughs> right. And so we, you know, we're a year and a half in. We don't even have a partner that would do that with us. Wow. Um, and that's okay with me. That's just kind of how it works in Arizona. And what I recognized is um, farmers are very unique Right. get up early there's not a lot of limelight on them it's a very thankless job in many ways because even delivering to restaurants you know how many chefs are stopping and saying wow this is beautiful thank you so much in the same way that when you drink a great bottle of wine and the winemaker hears it or when you serve somebody a great dish there's an awe to it right very rarely are you receiving something in so often and people are awestruck by it with that appreciation and and so because of that low margins hard work lack of awe, uh, you can think of how, how thankless that ends up and being. And did you see that in the farmer's faces when you kind of first started to be like, wow, thank you for you know, doing this, and you know, it, it, it's kind of a change in mentality? Well, I think the change in mentality also came about in farmer's markets, is the right. weird thing about it, because sure. people there are more thankful. And so what that created is this interesting shift where small farms used to be relying upon restaurants all the time. And now they're lesser so reliant upon it and they're more reliant upon farmer's markets because they can get a higher retail. Right. And then the restaurants are now the backside of this. So that changed the model completely five or six years ago. Right, right. And as well, and um, yeah, and, and so they don't have chefs uh, yelling at them when they don't have, uh, when they don't have this particular right. vegetable that's been on the menu. Much less demanding. How, Rand, can, you know, since the, the menu changes daily, uh, is that kind of hard for you on the wine side or is it is it more fun because you can be like, hey, this wine I ordered six months ago, boom, you know, finally it's got this amazing pairing with this with this dish that that is just coming out today. Yeah, I, you know, I think there's elements of that, but I, I feel like the ethos of what the restaurant is about with um, having a sense of place and being, you know, um, local and supporting chefs, uh, you know, I looked at it to find wines that kind of have a similar story. Um, they have a strong sense of right, place. Right. Um, you know, they, ha they have the kind of um, same ethos of that where there's a lot of care into the, um, the farming side um, and, and, and the, the viniculture side as well. But, um, you know, things that are, wines that are gonna be biodynamic, um, organic, small production, um, you know, Spontane, um, you know, wild natural yeast, yeast right, right. Um, things of that nature, which makes the, the list a lot of fun for me. You know, I would say the majority of the wines that we have in the list kind of follow that kind of um, structure. Um, and do you see those wines um, evolving over time as well? Like they're getting less funky, uh, if, if we can use that word, and they're getting a little bit more focused as well. Do you oh, see the evolution there? Absolutely. I, you know, I think that is a, a market that has increased exponentially in the last, um, you know, 5, 10, 15 yeah. years. Um, and, and, you know, there's still, you know, I find new wines, um, you know, every day that, um, you know, it's a young producer that's taken an old vineyard and kind of um, overhauled it to change the vineyard practices to being 100% organic or biodynamic. Um, and, you know, their first vintage was 2014. Right. Um, and, you know, so you see that shift happening and which is exciting for, you know, the wine market and for the consumer to, 
you know, have these wines that have a really strong sense of place, similar right. to kind of the food that we're serving here. And then is there a challenge in kind of disseminating that information to the staff, like on the whim, like on that go, that, that four o'clock, you know, hey, this is what we got? Or, or do you try and keep things really focused so it's a, it's a little bit easier? I don't want to say easier, but more focused. Well, it is a challenge because, uh, you know, we, you could have a wine that you absolutely love and you order it the day before and then they're like, oh, I'm so sorry, it's gone. And you're like, oh, all right. Um, and, you, you, you know, you find another bottle, bring in. So, you know, you try to have those moments where you can sit down and train the staff, which, you know, we do. And thankfully, I have a really educated team, which makes it easier for me. Right, right. Um, but yeah, you know, we sit down every single day and we, we have our lineup and we talk about wine, food, service, um, you know, the entire change, menu change of every single day. Right. Um, you know, so we have those moments. But, you know, if you do a, a, a large overhaul to the wine list in a short amount of time, um, you know, it can be trickier to keep everybody kind of up to date. But right. thankfully for me, you know, our list is, um, is really small. Um, and, you know, I but at the same time impactful. And I don't think you need a huge list to kind of give variety and create interest um, and provide um, you know, real options options and... for every different type of person out there. Because, you know, for, for me, I don't have a lot of big wines on the list. You know, I have a few because I know there's people who, you know, like that certain style of sure. wine. And, yeah. you know, our menu isn't always necessarily geared to pair with, you know, big, huge wines that are, you know, have a ton of tannin and maybe need a little bit uh, more years to rest. Right. Um, you know, but at the same time, you know, I, I want to create interest and have things that people have maybe never seen before, right. but also have a lot of familiarity. Um, so there's, um, you know, somebody can come in and, and feel comfortable at the Comfort same time. Absolutely. But, and either way, you know, whether it's a, a wine that they're comfortable with or not, like, our goal with the front of the house service is to really um, be welcoming and, and guide people through yeah. uh, an experience because, you know, we have our dim sum cart. We have, um, you know, a lot of small plates. We have ingredients that might be unfamiliar grapes that they've never seen before, right, right. a region that they've never heard, heard before. And um, for some people that can be overwhelming. Um, you know, even for our staff, you know, they're constantly learning. So if, if we're learning every single day, you know, you know, what is it like to a guest coming in? Sure. Um, so, you know, for us, it's being welcoming and hospitable and, you know, kind of guiding people through this unique dining experience, um, I think is um, one of the most important aspects yeah. for at least the front of the house. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm a big fan of kind of concise wine lists as well. Um, we, if you're just joining us, my name is Mark Rayshep. It's another bottle down and we're joined in the studio by Kevin Fink and Rand Egbert from Emmer and Rye. Uh, there's so much to talk about guys and we're short on time. Um, we, we talked about produce, but I want to dig a little bit more into you do stuff with heirloom grains too, which is also an interest of mine and whole animal, uh, butchering, et cetera. Can, can you talk to that? Um, is that, is that, is that difficult to source these heirloom grains? Is it? Yeah, yes. I have no uh, idea. <laughs> uh, the, the easy answer is yes, it is. Yeah. Um, I think that getting back to the, to the market of people growing them uh, is hard. Yeah. And the reason for that is that they uh, are, are heirloom a lot of times nowadays because selectively they've been sourced out because the yields are a little bit lower. And if you look at the grain industry and really most vegetable industries, uh, selection has been occur occurs because of um, low failure rate 
and high yield rate. And right. then also the amount of water that goes into, um, you know, the growing the actual uh, wheat berry. Uh, none of the things that I said have anything to do with nutrition right. uh, or flavor. Yeah. And that's the problem. The problem is, is that higher yield doesn't mean better. And in the same, in the wine industry too, that huge, hugely. So you, you had all these farmers that get a tremendous amount of volume of wheat right. that tastes like nothing, that gives no nutrients and gives wheat a really bad rap. Right. And uh, some of the original grains, Emmer um, and, and Durham um, and Einkorn and, and really all these different varietals of barley um, have really beautiful uh, varietal structure to them. And they themselves um, have, have higher nutrients, um, but they are harder to grow. Yeah, and we're, and we're, we're also saying that you're not necessarily talking about importing heirloom grains from Italy or you know, flour from Italy, or et cetera. What you're talking about is working with local farms. I mean, that has to be incredibly difficult. Well, specifically with grains, it is very difficult. Yeah. You know, a lot of them are from the south. We, we expand our territory a little sure. bit more than yeah. just Texas. But we also then have been constantly trying to find people to grow these yeah. um, and, and set them up to do that as successfully as possible and have an opportunity to do that. Now there's a local miller in town beyond just us. Right. So that allows a market. And the hardest thing that I think most people don't recognize is the reason why you can't just grow these heirloom grains as a, as a farmer is because... If you're bringing it to a huge commercial mill, they pay you the exact same amount of money. (laughs) So what am I going to do growing this grain next to my neighbor who's growing this like commodity grain that's getting a super high yield, that's putting in less work, that's putting in less water. And we go to the end product and they all get just put together into an AP flour mix and then sold off. Maybe mine gets grouped into organic if I want. Right. So until there's a market for some of these things, and there's an appreciation for it. And that, an awareness, right. And an awareness, it's harder. Absolutely. So for us, I pay a lot of times literally a thousand percent more than what the restaurant down the street does wow. for the same, like for flour is what <laughs> right, people call it. Right, right. And the reason why I do that is because I think it's that much better yeah and it's better for me and i feel better serving it to people and it and it just tastes more captivating right yeah and and i think that that is something that that a lot of folks are kind of catching on to this nourishing nourishing factor and and you need less food and you need you know and and you it's more fulfilling to to be eating it what about what about the um animals i mean the is, is well that's just fun that's just fun <laughs> i mean no i mean the really the reason why we do whole animals is a very simple one and, and, it, and i can bring it back to the farmer's market model right so every single small farmer knows fresh meat is better Everybody yeah. knows that. Right. What do you buy at the farmer's market? It's frozen. That's true, yeah. It's always out of a block chest, and it's frozen. And the reason for that is because small farmers can only afford one truck. Right. And they cannot afford to lose. And some days in a retail farmer's market where most of that sells, everybody wants steaks right. or pork chops or pork belly, and people don't want the offcuts. Right. And so then they can group them together and do a big blowout sale. And then, you know, every third week they're getting rid of that sort of thing. And to me, I knew that there was a problem. I don't want to serve people frozen meat. Right. So we found a way that if we uh, take the animal directly from um, the slaughterhouse to the restaurant and even a, a, a frozen truck, it will never have time to get down to that temp. And so we always have fresh product. Wow. 
And we're asking our farmer then to be a farmer, not a retail salesperson and a commercial salesperson and a farmer and a marketer. Right. I just want them to do the best for their animals that they can, and we'll take care of the rest. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. Uh, and, and it kind of just re- brings us back to kind of just old school restaurants in, you know, Paris or, you know, France that, that I think of. And um, it, it's really great that you're doing this. And I'm very happy to have you here in the studio. Uh, we only have a few minutes left. Uh, I want to talk about, I love talking to chefs as to what it is about composing a dish, you know, digging into like what you think about texture, um, flavor, acidity, uh, umami, or, you know, what, what is it that you kind of most value and, um, and, and what you're thinking about when you're composing these little plates that, that could be very complicated, complicated flavor wise. And then how we handle that on the wine side. It's a um, big the one, question, the one word that I always try and seek out uh, in our food is vibrancy. Mm. Yeah. I always want uh, it to be something that when it interacts with your palate and your brain, it uh, creates uh, an emotional reaction. Um, and that's a hard thing to do. Right. Um, sometimes it's by having something be just very simple. Sometimes it's by having something be very intense. But I, I always want it to react when you eat it um, and, and really kind of make you take a step back for a second. Yeah, yeah. That's... Um and and Rand, do you use that 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 uh, same word vibrancy with wine? I, I quite use that that word a lot with wine when yeah, I talk about abs- or alive the wine you know is being alive. Uh, absolutely, um, you know when you talk about acidity, you know vibrancy really kind of goes hand in hand with that. And to me, I think acidity is one of the most important components in a food uh, in a dish to really kind of make it pop. And I think with wine it's the same as well you need kind of um, that acidity really kind of um invites you back to want to drink more want to eat more um you know um satiates you and keeps your your palate really kind of vibrant and alive right um and you know i think when he um you know when i'm you talk about complexity of flavors. You know, for me, I'm not always so obsessed with trying to pair one wine with one dish, and that's the beauty of our restaurant with the small plates. It's really trying to find, you know, interesting wines that are going to go with a lot of things. Right, and right. Uh, you know, if you can find a wine that has, you know, um, great minerality, great acidity, um, you know, interesting um, fruit flavors, and um, whether it's oaked or not, you know, I, all those different kind of complexities and um, layers coming together. Um, just kind of complement uh, right. the food that we do. Yeah, you know, I always, I never hear a winemaker saying, you know, you should have this wine, my wine, w- with with this food. There might be other reasons for that, but but you know, it's like serve good wine and you know, and and good food, and and it, it will somehow work. Um, guys, you have to get back to the the madness of South by, but uh, we we do want to mention the Indie Chefs Week. Um, Absolutely, and uh, because folks can get more information at indiechefsweek.com, uh, and that's coming up. Up. It's it's uh, uh, March fifteenth, or it's tomorrow or so. Yeah. Can you give us a little overview? I know you're not involved. It's your sous chef, but uh, tell us a little it's bit. My chef de cuisine. He's chef de cuisine. Wildly I'm talented. Yeah. He used to run Uchiko and Star Restaurant. So Paige Presley will be doing Wednesday. Okay. Um, and then Saturday as well. Wow. Uh, so Saturday, I think Wednesday is completely sold out already. Um, but uh, there is still um, availability. I think. For Saturday, I'm sure that will be gone soon too. Right, right. So go check it out; it's awesome. Um, and just in general, these are fun things because everyone gets to get 
together to enjoy it and make it a good time. And those are the times that I think become the most special. So like 27 chefs from around the country or something like that. So it'll I, end mean, up, I think it's going to end up being 14 courses on Saturday because they're collaborating because it would be overkill otherwise. Right, right, but right. still, um, 14 really thought out, inspired, Dishes. fun food. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Guys, thank you so much for, for being here. Uh, uh, we'll stay in, in touch with uh, your events going on and, and also what South By has going and growing to be next year as well. Um, thank you again for taking the time today and uh, good luck with the rest of the week. Oh, thanks. We need it. Thank you very much. All right. We're going to take a short break here and then uh, hear from some Italian winemakers. My name is Mark Rayshep. You've been listening to Another Bottle Down. This is Kevin Fink and Ran Egbert from Emmer and Rye. You can see more information at emmerandrye.com. We're going to take a short break here from some underwriters and announcements, and we'll be right back with Co-op Radio, koop.org.